This third session is Handypage and Education, and we've already heard how important Sir Frederick Handypage regarded education as being, and how much effort he put into the education of his staff. We have two um, papers this afternoon on Handley Page and the City University, which was formerly Northampton College, and Handley Page and Cranfield. City University and Cranfield were probably the two educational institutions most closely linked to Handley Page. And to begin with, Chris Atkin, Professor of Aeronautical Engineering at the City University, is going to talk about Handley Page and the City University. And this is a relationship that I think goes back to 1910. Professor Atkin. Thank you very much, and thank you for uh, inviting us to participate. Um, I'm Professor of Aeronautical, Aeronautics at City, and part of my job description is also Director of the Handley Page Laboratory, so uh, it's very nice to be here. Um, I have to confess I'm really a DH man, having started work at Hatfield, but nobody's perfect. Um, my personal connection with Handley Page is probably through um, my research interests, which are uh, in laminar flow technology, so uh, I know Professor Gaster there, um, and I live not very far away from Cranfield, so um, we're getting there. So um, I'm unashamedly just going to uh, take a stroll through some of the sources that, uh, that I've un uncovered in, in, in looking into this topic. Really just talk about the Northampton, um, some snippets from the early days of, of the establishment of these institutions, which uh, amused me greatly. And then just looking at, at uh, HP and what he must have done at, uh, at Northampton Square, uh, his association as an employer of graduates, and just a couple of comments, really, of how we're doing and, and where we see ourselves going in the future. Um, so let's start with home. Hands up, everyone who was actually at the Northampton at some stage. A goodly number. Okay. I've tried to keep the pub references down to a minimum. <laughs> so um, let's quickly review... Um, after my appointment, I thought, well, I better understand how places like the Northampton came to be. Um, now, the background uh, to the foundation of the, the London Polytechnic Institutes was the uh, City of London Parochial Charities Act in 1883. Um, I'll give you uh, an extract from um, Teague's History of the City University to, to show you where the money came from. So in 1555, Robert Kitchen, an assistant in the Saddler's Company and sometime warden of that livery company, left certain lands uh, of his to the company. His stipulation was that every Sunday in the year, before noon, forever, uh, 12 poor people uh, of the parish should be given 12 pence apiece. Uh, and the sum of 15 shillings and 4 pence should be given again every year, yearly, forever, to the church wardens of the parish for the repair of the church, uh, and to the youngest warden uh, of the uh, Saddler's Company, um, three shillings and fourpence a year for his trouble in the distribution of these arms. Okay, and what was left over, the residue, uh, was to be used forever on the upkeep of the said properties. 
Now, apparently by 1883, they couldn't find 12 poor people in any of the parishes of the city of London. So the... Hard to believe nowadays. They're all bankers, aren't they? Um, so in 1883, they collected all these uh, charitable bequests together and said, we're going to spend this money on something useful. Um, and the Northampton Institute was founded um, uh, out of that initiative um, in 1891. Uh, and the site was, was given by the Marquess of Northampton, who rather amusingly was never asked to be on the governing body until he gate-crashed the second meeting of the government body and insisted that uh, he should be involved. Um, the Northampton Polytechnic Institute, I'm not sure it's a name that would be familiar to you, but it appears in all the early references. Uh, the Polytechnic uh, appears to mean that the Institute catered for uh, technical education, cultural entertainment, and sporting activities, so that they were multifaceted. Uh, and even in the early days, um, the founders lamented that uh, and I quote, the whole of the higher institutions in London together will not bear comparison with a single first-class foreign polytechnic. So even a 100 years ago, we were gazing admiringly at the French and the Germans and how they educated their engineers. So that was the foundation. Um, five years later, um, Molyneux Wormsley was appointed the first principal, and by all evidence, he was a remarkable character. Um, really built up the Northampton to be a great institution. And he was principal until 1924. Uh, he died from injuries sustained in a car accident. But by 1924, the Northampton um, was already able to apply to the University of London to be recognized as a full school of the UL. Um, and for some reason, it was turned down. I'm sure academic snobbery didn't come into it. But, um, but that's quite an achievement in um, 28 years. Um, so we see that uh, in 1896, the principal was appointed, the first building started to be built, and there were limited activities already by the following September, although there were some building delays. Um, and uh, uh, things were fully up and running uh, in the following year. And the next name um, I want to draw your attention to is uh, Charles Larrard, who was head, second head of the Mechanical Engineering Department. Now, Wormsley... Larrard and Hanley Page, I think, are responsible for setting up the training scheme, the laboratories that you've benefited from, and the fabulous institution that I have to be holding the reins of at the moment. So, um, with the CD, you'll find a PDF, which is just a page of web links. And I'm, un I'm, un I'm unashamedly uh, quoting... Uh, Paul Smith has given me some help. Teague's History of the City University. But the uh, archives of Flight Magazine, uh, every page of which is available freely on the Internet, so you can chase up all these links. But uh, Professor Gaster, please note, July 17, 1909, News of the Week, uh, the Northampton Institute has decided to teach flight and aeronautics during the next session. Um, the interesting thing about this was that uh, the London County Council kept a very tight rein on these sorts of activities. Everything had to be approved. And the Northampton had no business um, approving um, such a course without going to the LCC first. But fortunately, um, it was indeed approved in the August of that year, retrospectively, 
And I noticed that the courses offered by the Imperial College were still subject to review, so obviously they didn't come up to scratch. <laughs> now, I mentioned Professor Gaster because I couldn't find any mention of the East London College, now Queen Mary. Uh, I know Thurston established a laboratory in 1908, but he certainly wasn't advertising for students uh, by 1909. Um, and so we have, again, a nice little extract of uh, advertisement in Flight Magazine. Now, um, the reason I put this one up is not necessarily because it's of interest. We know the courses were running, but these, these archive sources, there are nuggets absolutely everywhere. So the reason I've printed this is because of what appeared above it, which is that Mr. S.F. Cody had agreed to enter for the London to Manchester. Uh, Cody, of course, being... Uh, the pioneer of UK aviation and, and the hero of Farnborough, where I, I worked until about three years ago. So the Northampton enjoyed a great deal of coverage in flight in those early years. Um, now, I don't know how to pronounce this chap's name. Uh, Blind as Bleds, but I think maybe he was Belgian or something. Is it Blind de Blay or something like that? Um, he was a, a character who was appointed to run the first lectures in 1909. And rather interestingly, and this is not really for you to attempt to read, but Flight saw fit to publish his first examination paper in aerodynamics. Uh, we believe it to be the first instance um, of, of an exam in aerodynamics, they say. Um, it's on the, it'll be on the hard copy, so don't read it now. The examining questions cover uh, effective aspect ratio. Calculations of lift and drag on, on certain shapes, or drift as it was then known. Uh, analysis of stability using diagrams. Analysis of propeller efficiency. Uh, and the idea of the lift vector, um, vertical force reducing as you bank the aircraft. I think this is fantastic, and one assumes that the students managed to pass the paper after the paper had been leaked to the press in this way. <laughs> But it strikes me as, as an examiner in aerodynamics myself, it's fantastic to see a paper that has no mention of Lanchester, no mention of Prantle in it. It, it. These are names that I use in practically every week of my working life. So uh, the Handy Page era began in 1910. Um, what else happened? Well, day classes were approved for the first time uh, in 1910, day classes in aeronautics. And Mr. Uh, F. Handy Page was appointed as a lecturer for the princely sum of £75 per session, the session being the academic year, and he did two to three evenings per week, and they obviously liked him because they got him back in to do uh, calculations one evening a week. Interestingly, at a reduced rate of £15 a session, um, and even to this day we pay less for tutorials than we do for lectures. This must have been the, the tradition. Um, I think... Uh, Paul Smith suggests that uh, 90 pounds per session may have helped HP with his cash flow because he set up his own company, obviously, at the same time. Didn't interfere with his working day. His lectures uh, started at 7.15 in the evening, including Fridays, uh, and the calculation sessions were after the lectures. Um, HP was extremely proactive at the Northampton. Uh, he laid out uh, an aeronautical laboratory with the support of, of Wormsley and Marard, and Teague flags this up as definitely um, the momentous event of 1910 for the Northampton Institute was to get uh, a character like Handley Page involved uh, in aeronautics. He was quite good at marketing the, uh, the courses as well. Um, 
I haven't put the article up for you, but that's the headline. This is in 1911. HP is writing in flight to say, come and look at our courses, aren't they marvelous? Um, the, uh, let me just give you an extract from this. Um, he starts off by saying the Northampton Polytechnic Institute may fairly claim to be the first technical institute to start aeronautical engineering work as part of the regular course of their evening classes. Um, blah, blah. And then he says in the next session in 1910, the course was put under my charge and the equipment of an aeronautical laboratory was laid out. Um, sings its praises. There's also an experimental streamline apparatus by which one can see the air flowing around a plane and thus get a picture of what actually happens when an aeroplane is moving through the air. In the workshop part of the course, a full-size monoplane is under construction and a 30-horsepower engine purchased so that everything is now ready to finish off this session. So the mention of the construction of a full-size monoplane uh, raises the question of, of how HP managed the flow of intellectual property from the Northampton to Hanley Page, and preferably not the other way around. Um, this is a picture of the Type C, um, which ended up as an instructional airframe at the Northampton. And presumably he would have benefited from allowing the students to play with his older designs and maybe come up with some new ideas without really letting on what, what his current thinking was. There's a nice article, um, again, Flight Magazine, uh, June 16, 1949, which would be the 40th celebration of Handley Page, um, how the former editor... Uh, recounts how um, he was doing uh, drawings of, I think it was the Type E, um, and he knew that HP wouldn't like him to put in too many dimensions. So HP duly came along and told him to rub out the dimensions that he put in, uh, and he'd actually secreted a piece of carbon paper under his sketch so that he didn't lose them. But HP was very keen not to give away too much information. We have a general arrangement of the Type E here, uh, not the one I was just talking about, um, possibly done by one of the students at the Northampton while a student. Um, if not, then certainly while he was at the company. This is none other than George Volkert, uh, architect of the Halifax, among other aircraft, uh, and chief designer uh, to the Handy Page Company. And Volkert's successor as chief designer was another uh, NIAN, uh, Reginald Stafford who was at the Northampton between 22 and 26. So Handy Page clearly recognized the value of getting in contact with bright young things very early on in their careers and then poaching them. Um, and this is really where the strong links, I think, between uh, the Northampton and the company um, grew. Now, HP's personal contribution to the Northampton is really restricted to this period, 1910 to 1915. Um, a lot of correspondence in flight uh, about the uniqueness of the courses uh, at the Northampton uh, and launching the London Aero Club in 1913. <clears throat> now, at this stage, there's some wonderful correspondence because um, scarcely able to contain his frustration, Mr. Blain de Blade, who by this stage was back at the Regent Street Polytechnic, wrote an extremely irate letter to flight uh, castigating Walmsley and Larard for claiming that the Northampton courses were so complete and that they were the first, because of course they weren't the first. Mine were the first, and we have a flying club too, and so on and so forth. 
Uh, one has to speculate at uh, why this gentleman was no longer in charge when HP was appointed in 1910, uh, and whether indeed there was a degree of sour grapes in this correspondence. But um, it was a fatal error because he merely played into the hands of Larard and Walmsley, who were then able to publish a rebuttal which went to about 12 column inches describing exactly how complete and thorough the courses at the Northampton were. <laughs> so it wasn't just the Northampton staff who were singing um, the praises. Let me tell you, let me read you a letter in Teague's history from a Mr. Hunsacker of the U.S. Navy, Dr. Mullineux Walmsley, October 14, 1913. Dear Sir, Upon a recent visit to Northampton Institute, I was very sorry not to have been able to call upon you to present the compliments of Dr. McLaren, President of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Boston, by whom I am sent abroad to study aeronautical development with a view to establishing courses and a research laboratory in Boston. I was much pleased and surprised to find the work at your institute so complete. I believe it is the only complete course in theory and design that is available. With high regards, I am very respectfully yours, J.G. Hunsacker, Naval Constructor, United States Navy. So if you want to see where HP's academic legacy is now, it's across the pond at MIT. Um, so we have uh, commendations in the War Office, um, but I think by 1915, Hanley Page was pretty much occupied wholly with the business of building aircraft. Um, Lachman wrote in his second uh, Handy Page Memorial Lecture that the facilities at the Northampton uh, were used to help the development and test of the um, O-100 aircraft, which I'm showing here. But uh, the leakage carried on. In 1916, uh, Handy Page's colleague at the NI, R.O. Boswell, um, was granted leave of absence to carry out research um, for Handley Page at Cricklewood, and I think this coincides with the opening of the new wind tunnel facility there. Uh, Boswell never came back in 1918. He, um, he joined Handley Page permanently, but you would imagine by this time there would be very few people in, in full-time study. Um, let me talk briefly about uh, the legacy uh, uh, life at Northampton after the HP. Uh, Walmsley and Larrard carried on the tradition and relevance of excellence um, started by Handley Page, uh, again, there's another long paper, six and a half pages, written by them, explaining every gory detail of, of the correct training of aeronautical engineers, um, including the correct type of school education required. Um, they weren't very keen on independent schools that, that you know, force-fed young men information. They preferred schools where you learn to think for yourself. Um, there was plenty of social comment in this paper. Lots of references to engineering requires hewers of wood and drawers of water, which I don't think would go down terribly well today. Um, and there's a fantastic appreciation of the future significance of this young profession, um, which I want to quote to you. So this is Wormsley and Larrard writing in 1917. Seldom in any branch of engineering has a new profession been created in so short a time, and never under such dramatic circumstances. Aeronautical engineering as a profession has been brought into prominence and practically created by the great issues at stake in the disastrous conflict still raging. Before the war, aeronautics was little more than a sport or pastime. It has now definitely taken its place and will in future rank as a great profession. 
And I think what we've seen here today merely confirms that they were correct in that. So these are the kind of things that we would see uh, in the syllabus uh, and the timetable. Uh, I'm pleased to say not hugely different from the core subjects we would study today, but you won't see optimization there, and you won't see management, you won't see human resources. Uh, you won't see sustainability, but that's something that engineers have to deal with all the time. That's an extract from the timetable. Um, the only comment I would make on that to a modern-day lecturer is there are no 9 o'clock lectures, which is something of an asset. There is, however, Saturday morning classes, which are not so attractive. Um, and interestingly, uh, each part had one or more sessions in the gymnasium at the end of the day. Um, presumably those not inclined to physical jerks would slink off to the Seckford Arms for a few mugs of ale instead. Um, again, the best bit of this page of flight is missing. Um, just under this syllabus of the Northampton Institute are the announcements of those recently elected to the Aeronautical Society of Great Britain. So July 5th, 1917, among the new fellows announced was one F.W. Lanchester. Among the associate fellows was one T.O.M. Sockwith. And among the members, one H.G. Wells. So you won't be looking at the timetable when you scan that page of flight. So really after this period, HP was clearly concentrating on his company. But um, there are obviously strong links, as a lot of you here went through the Northampton, your apprenticeships. Um, interesting discussion on whether the Northampton had any input to the slotted aerofoil. Well, in 1922, HP himself took the chair for Walmsley's son, Robert, to present um, to the Engineering Society uh, on the Hanley Page wing or the Hanley Page slotted wing. In 1926, we've mentioned Stafford joined Hanley Page um, and he went on to become chief designer. In 1945, Hanley Page wrote a long article in flight explaining his two apprenticeship courses. Uh, by 1958, there, well, there were seven apprenticeship routes, apparently, um, and explicit references to the Northampton. Um, interestingly, in, in the 1958 article, HP declared that one-third of the company's profits were spent on apprentices', apprentices wages and training costs. One-third of the profits. I'm sure BA Systems have got an equally enviable record today. <laughs> Uh, Stafford, when he became technical director, one year later came back and became also governor of the uh, Engineering Day College, um, and he introduced the Stafford Prizes. There may be some winners here. I think Paul is one. Um, and apparently, these were funded by the company, so, so Stafford obviously had a, a bit of a budget to spend. And, of course, a predecessor of mine, George Doan, uh, was an HP apprentice who came back to the university uh, and was professor of aeronautics. So let's have a quick look at what we have today. Um, a couple of minutes. I'd love to tell you that we do actually test uh, missile strikes on F-16 models, but that's actually the flash gun of my camera. Um, but we have a very strong HP identity in the lab. It is the Hanley Page Laboratory. That is the bust of Hanley Page that was commissioned for the opening of the lab in 1964. Uh, that's our picture of HP that's sitting on the front here. Uh, hangs on the wall, and he's always keeping an eye on us. That's our T1 tunnel. 
The frames are believed to be original from the 1910 laboratory, but I, I don't think anything else is. But it's the sort of tunnel that you can bash about and do what you like with. You can see in the background our bit of our T4 tunnel and our T2 research tunnel, and there's a T3 research tunnel, a T8 industrial tunnel, and T5 and T6 transonic tunnels, so we've still got a lot of kit. So where do we go next? Well, uh, John made reference to this, this article uh, in the Times yesterday. It's on the Times online as well. Um, and really we see um, our links with HP continuing because I'm a believer in, in the future of laminar flow. It's my research area. It's something that the Handy Page Laboratory will start researching again very shortly. Um, new concepts of aircraft, uh, low-speed unswept wings, or indeed the society's own blended wing body with unducted fans. So there's life in the lab yet. So I'd like to thank my various sources and thank you very much for your attention. Thank you very much, Chris, for taking us through Northampton Institute and Handley Page's links to it. Uh, we now move on to Cranfield, and Gordon Page is going to talk to us about Handley Page and Cranfield. Gordon is a past president of the Royal Aeronautical Society and is pro-chancellor of Cranfield University. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. First of all, thank you very much for inviting me to share this day um, of remembrance and celebration. Uh, it's a great honor for me. As you've heard, my name is Gordon Page, and just to remove any misunderstanding, I'm not related to Sir Frederick Hanley Page, or indeed to his flying ace nephew, Geoffrey Page. To increase the propensity for misunderstanding, my own father was Sir Frederick Page, um, <laughs> of Canberra, Lightning, Jaguar, Tornado, British Aircraft Corporation, and other aeronautical fame. I know actually that he would have shared, he did share, many of the passions, vision, and frustrations of our subject today. As a past president of the society, the SBAC, and as an officer of Cranfield University, I think I can claim an affinity with my remarkable namesake. Were he here today, I think he would be rather proud of the way in which these three institutions have developed. From the start of his industrial career, Hanley Page was interested in a structured approach to industry, training and further education, research and engineering and manufacturing were all essential sciences. They could and should be organized within an integrated framework. What we take for granted today was pretty radical when the aerospace industry was in its infancy and in fact dominated by a number of adventurous and heroic pioneers. The interesting thing about Hanley Page's life and achievements is that they covered the transition from trial and error experimentation to the formation of an aerospace industry. He progressively addressed and was interested in the problem not of will it fly, but of how we can design and manufacture more efficient and purposeful aircraft based on scientific knowledge. And how best can we continue to develop the knowledge required to do just that. The major part of his industrial career fell in a period of national economic austerity, 
This only enhances the values of his achievements. Yes, he was a visionary, but you will hear from some of my later remarks that he was still very much a man of his time. There is a fascinating mixture of radical vision and, to us, old-fashioned views. It's an uncommon mix, which, combined with his driving energy, enabled him to play such a major part in the creation of today's aerospace industry. He had a lifelong interest in attracting the best available talents into industry, both by direct recruitment and by training and upskilling those who did not always have the best education. He was enlightened in this respect, and inclusion, if I might call it that, was to be a theme of his career. I'll quote a number of his remarks uh, addressing this area uh, a bit later on. As we've heard, around 1910, he is recorded as teaching, developing, and using the laboratory facilities at the Northampton Institute, now City University. <coughs> this, when he was in the process of forming his own company, Handley Page Limited, and it's a feature of his life that he was able to multitask, and I think that glimpse into his time scale of teaching after a long working day uh, would have floored most of us um, after quite a short while. Moving on a little bit, Hanley Page was very active in early discussions with industry and government on the need for a huge boost in technical research, training and education, and particularly for the aeronautics sector. In the UK, not much was done in the interwar years to address future technology, planning and development. And the need for this and the gaping gap in the UK's capability was highlighted by a UK mission to the United States in 1942, which found that, to quote, the design and engineering forces employed at the chief aircraft and engine plants was of the order of five times greater than that which is employed in this country. The mission also found that a large number of senior service personnel and government officials were technically qualified and quite often university or technical college graduates. So concerned was the industry that in conjunction with the Royal Aeronautical Society, it held two open days in June and July 1943. These were chaired by Dr. Roxby Cox, later Lords Kings Norton. Hanley Page spoke at the first of these and was concerned to widen the debate from just the training of research workers which, to quote him, rather narrowed down their ideas of education to theoretical work not immediately connected with engineering. He advocated that engineering production, including materials and processes, and administration, should be a part of an integrated education process. He fully supported the emerging view that the UK should have a central postgraduate school for aeronautical engineering. The 1942 mission had noted that the U.S. had several specialized institutions, including military research laboratories and more academic institutions such as MIT. These were not just trivial meetings. The minutes of the first of the two open days ran to something like 85 pages of close typed words. And they, they went into absolutely meticulous detail over these two days of what sort of equipment was required, how it should be laid out for proper training. Just a few quotes from his input to the first of those meetings. There were two kinds of people in this country who needed education for industry. 
First, there was the kind of person who, by reason of his circumstances, could not continue his ordinary school education up to the age at which it was usual to enter a university. At an early age, he would therefore enter the hard life in the works, where he would learn engineering to survive. In my opinion, this is really the best way to learn all the details. The second kind of individual, more fortunate, remained at school until he entered the university. He received a really good education from the point of view of book learning, with perhaps a minimum of practical work. It was most difficult to ensure that a person who had been educated at a college or university would follow that up by a really good education in the works. Presumably, the whole question could be studied when a research organization and central college had been established, at which they could teach students everything they ought to learn. And then, getting a bit adventurous, he said, such a facility might give technical training to even potential prime ministers, air marshals, or even company directors. <laughs> Another quote, on the production side of aircraft, they should encourage those who are engineers and who desired to go more deeply into the methods by which articles were made and should give them greater opportunity to take post a postgraduate course. And in doing so, recognition must be given to the cost of heavy and expensive machinery that would be necessary when reviewing the facilities required. And one last one. With regard to the administrative side of engineering, any long program needed planning. And planning needed progressing, and the whole thing must go forward in an orderly and well-balanced sequence. Engineers very often look down on such matters which were perceived as commercial and on a rather low scale. The people involved very often came into industry by the tradesman's entrance. Modern industry, and not just aerospace, recognizes these problems, but that is not to say they're behind us. And in fact, one of the most sought-after talents in industry today is program management. It was an issue which impressed Hanley Page in connection with American research, the substantive scale of administrative ability that was available and which governed the general outlook of research organizations. More was needed in the UK, and proper training in all these aspects in structured programs must be encouraged. He was indeed a very practical man. He would, I think, have been proud to see Cranfield's Aerospace, Engineering, Manufacturing, Applied Sciences, and Management Schools on a single campus alongside its own operating airfield and to see the university's extensive and very practical programs conducted in partnership with a range of world-leading technology companies. I think he would also, uh, in spite of some of the uh, feelings of his age, welcome the mix of international abilities and cultures on campus. These 1943 meetings culminated in the Aeronautical Society taking the initiative and framing a series of resolutions which were accepted by government as the basis for further study. In a relatively ordered process, the gov a government committee was formed and its report accepted by Cabinet. This led to the establishment of the College of Aeronautics at Cranfield in 1945, and Hanley Page was appointed to the original board, which met for the first time in December 1945. The board was faced with an enormous challenge of providing a central postgraduate technology facility from, if not a greenfield site, than a decommissioned wartime RAF airfield. Looking back on it now, in some respects, a green field might actually be more preferable, but we were where we were. 
The Cranfield site, originally 100 acres of farmland in Bedfordshire, had been acquired by the Air Ministry in 1935 and RAF Cranfield was established in 1937. It was home to flights of the Hawker Hind and the Blenheim, but that's another story. The first students, all 41 of them, arrived in October 46 and most joined the aerodynamics and aircraft design courses. To be able to accept them only 10 months after the first meeting of governors was a considerable achievement. Imagine playing a major role in this while fighting to sustain your own independent aircraft company as well as representing the industry through involvement in its societies and serving on the odd government committee. He was a man indeed of, of considerable energy. Hanley Page remained directly involved with Cranfield from 1945 until his death in 1962. He was the second chairman of governors and his tenure in that position lasted from 1953 until 1962. He was succeeded by the now Sir Harold Roxby Cox, referred to earlier and later ennobled as Lord Kings Norton. Cranfield has indeed been fortunate in its chairman over the years. Hanley Page saw real progress at Cranfield. Its constitution was updated. The work-study school was formed with industrial sponsors later to develop into the very well-known and capable school of management. In 1957, the college assumed management responsibility for the Cranfield site and acquired the freehold from government in 1963. He oversaw creation of new departments in aircraft electrical engineering and in mathematics in 1955 and in aircraft materials in 1958. An amended deed of trust was agreed in 1960 which allowed the college to engage in a wider range of activities. New courses were introduced covering fluid mechanics, controls engineering and indeed automotive engineering. A program of diversification exactly in line with his own long-held beliefs. He successfully led Cranfield out of the post-war crisis and laid the foundations for a more diversified technical institution. He and his team secured ownership of the campus, thus ensuring a considerable degree of long-term financial stability. And today, Cranfield University is an internationally competitive, practical technology center of excellence. I think he'd have loved it. His personal commitment to the development of Cranfield over many years was in addition to managing his own company, which produced a range of increasingly sophisticated aircraft. A real struggle for a relatively small, independent company competing with much larger and stronger corporate entities. I have a particular affinity with the Victor nuclear bomber, which, when fitted with air-to-air -air refueling from my last company, Cobham, performed so well over so many years. Hanley Page Limited, under his leadership, established a formal apprenticeship scheme which was recognized as a benchmark in industry. And the company regularly sponsored some of its most promising employees on courses at Cranfield. The name of Hanley Page is remembered today at Cranfield with an annual lecture, a named road within the university campus and a number of named meeting and function rooms. His portrait looks down, kindly I hope, on our deliberations, and there is one other very tangible connection. The university owns and operates a Hanley Page Jetstream 31, um, and for the anoraks like myself, registration number GNFLA. 
This is the National Flying Laboratory Center. The university, in fact, operated an older Jetstream Mark I uh, for some years, and Cranfield Aerospace also looks after a second Jetstream for another, for another owner. I have flown in our laboratory aircraft, and not only is it a very nice aircraft to fly, but the tuition facilities from cockpit to individual seat are excellent. And the Jetstream continues to be used on a number of advanced projects, including simulated UAV operations. Again, I think Sir Frederick would have been very proud of that achievement and would thoroughly have approved of the various programs that aircraft is engaged in. And that's about it from me, I think. Thank you all very much for listening. I've been privileged to have been included in this part of the celebration of the centenary of the first British aircraft company. And I'll finish with one last quote from the great man himself. Nothing is so inspiring as seeing big works well laid out and planned and a real engineering organization. Thank you all very much. Thank you very much, Gordon. Could I ask uh, Gordon and Chris to take seats at the table for the discussion? I'm not sure if this is a comment or a question. Gordon, I was really fascinated to hear your quote from the British mission to the US in the 40s, emphasizing the technical quality of personnel in industry and government there. Um, I was fortunate to spend about 10 years at Royal Aircraft Establishment in the 60s and 70s, during which time I had the chance both to visit the US and meet Americans in this country. And what really struck me, and it may be prejudice on my part, was that many of the people doing research in industry in the US were doing work comparable to what we were doing at Farnborough. When I went to research establishments in the British industry, they just were not, in general, they were not the same caliber. They're often a bit better than test houses, but not a lot better sometimes. The one exception was Handley Page. From, BAC, from Vickers Weybridge, I went to Handley Page because we were looking at laminar flow control for airliners. And that was the one time I went to industry and found somewhere that was doing work of the sort we would subsequently do at Farnborough. I don't know, is that a fair comment? Well, if I can jump in there. I, I was a member of the research department at Hatfield, which was closed down and, and replaced by nothing else. And um, yes, I, I think it probably is a fair comment. No criticism of industry, but... Um, there's a perception that um, it's a sort of waste of resource yeah. I think, amongst a lot of the companies to have people of that nature doing that sort of work. But conversely, it's it's impossible. Um, if you're doing research into aeroplanes and you're not next to an airfield watching them take off, it, it's almost meaningless in my view. Yeah. And I think it's very important that links between you know researchers and people who are building the things and testing them have got to be very, very close. So I think the Americans have got a march on us there. Yeah. Thank you. Question? Well, perhaps I could just add a comment to that. Last year I had to do some research on Guggenheim, who in, trying to get my years right, it was about 1926, 
um, funded, and again numbers are right, I think seven American universities to start serious courses in aeronautics. Um, the Guggenheim Safe Airplane Competition was just one of the things he did. He instituted um, Transit America um, navigation systems. So he he made this contribution in the in the twenties, and in particular, through founding these American universities, you know, Caltech, MIT, Georgia Tech. You go through them. Um, when World War II came, uh, the American industry was in a strong position to respond because they had the output of seven very strong schools yeah. founded by a man of vision. And uh, we're talking here today about another man of vision who, perhaps in not such a big way, he wasn't a millionaire. He didn't own all the copper mines in, in Colombia or wherever, but uh, nevertheless, um, it, if we, look, if we look back over the past century, you see the role that important, single, strong-minded individuals have. And their understanding of the importance of education as what our future depends on. Thank you, John. An interesting one, just to pick up on that, John. I was looking for the quote, but one of the other passages related to that little jibe I made at, at uh, courses from Imperial College and, and the Regent Street Polytechnic sort of not being approved, is there's a comment from the London County Council saying, you know, these things are all very exciting and all very well, but we must be very careful. They require a lot of expensive kit, and we don't want everybody putting in for expensive kit, which is the opposite of what you've just described with Guggenheim, which is to say everybody should be doing it. We should be having this everywhere. You know, that the British perspective was, <clears throat> well, as long as you, you know, you'll stay within budget, which clearly you have to, but, but it begs the question, is the budget appropriate? Question in sent. My name is Paul Smith. I've heard it said that if you can't be born rich, it's good to be born lucky. <laughs> I certainly wasn't born rich, but I was born lucky. Because in 1952, I went to Handley Page as an apprentice, and I believe it really was the best apprenticeship scheme in the industry. And it also took me to Northampton Polytechnic. And 50 years later, I was also there as visiting professor of aircraft design for six years. So I've seen both ends of the education process. And I think today's students are very unfortunate not to have the same sort of opportunities that I had. The other thing I would say about my luck is that after five years of apprenticeship and about two months in the aerodynamics office, I was appointed as technical assistant to Sir Frederick from 57 to 1961. So I was very privileged in... I can recognize the office that Tony talked about earlier, except that I didn't share it with, with Gus Larkman, who by that time had moved upstairs and had a large department of his own. But I feel privileged to have had 50 years of somebody paying me to do what I would have loved to do as a hobby if I'd had the money to do it. Thank you, Harry Page Mitchell. Um, I think one of the outstanding things that I'd noticed about 
handy paid apprentices, particularly those who went to both City and Cranfield, was really how good they were. They really were excellent students. And HP and the team he had under him who selected these students seemed to have a, I don't know, an, an almost, um, uh, you know, a, a ball of, uh, a crystal ball, you know, to, to say what they're going to do. Because there are very few that I can think of that I've met who haven't done extremely well. And they all started off at either Cranfield or sometimes City first and then Cranfield. Um, and uh, they went on to do great things, not always for the company, but for other companies, and sometimes not always in uh, aeronautics. Um, the other thing that impressed me about um, the Handy Page approach to education was, uh, I think this comes from the, uh, the Sir Frederick himself, and that is, he always insisted that the engineer had to be a rounded engineer. He was very keen, as I think we, was, was mentioned, uh, very keen on practical engineering, so most of his uh, apprentices went through the workshops, uh, and, you know, really got their hands dirty, uh, and then they got their theoretical uh, knowledge and all the rest of it. But he was keen on them being a rounded, uh, rounded individual, so he was extremely keen on extracurricular activities. And um, I was glad to see that back in, what, 1910, was it, you did gymnastics? Yes. Yes, you, you did gymnastics. Uh, I don't know whether he would have gone for gymnastics, but he certainly went for uh, all the other um, cultural activities. He himself was a very, uh, well, very cultured man, had a lot of interests, and he expected to see that in his uh, apprentices. And, and I, I, I thank both Cranfield and uh, City um, for, uh, I had some small uh, dealings with both, uh, for providing that rounded education. Was actually a theme that, that recurs throughout all the research, certainly that I did for this paper, um, even to the point of, of taking on some of his peers in the society and industry at the time, to say you've got to be inclusive of, of all the disciplines that, that can put together um, a proper design engineer. Yeah. Thanks. Yes. Can I can I, uh, can I embarrass the chairman a moment? Um, he, he and I were undergraduates at uh, St. John's College in Cambridge in uh, uh, 1956 through to 59, uh, and we were supervision partners for the first two years doing a completely um, general engineering degree. And in the third year, you specialized, and I did thermodynamics, and Kit did aeronautics. And at some point during that third year, I still remember very distinctly saying, you know, how's it going and, and what are you doing and what do you think about doing, uh, you, you know, your aeronautics here. And um, I'm not sure that he used the word complete, but he did think his third year doing aeronautics at Cambridge was a bit of a waste of time. What he was really looking forward to was going to Cranfield for two years. That was the real thing that mattered to him, he said. And I'd not heard of Cranfield, but I was quite interested to, to get his perception at that stage. Thanks, John. I don't remember that at all. <laughs> but what was fascinating was um, I did three, as John says, I did three years engineering at Cambridge, two at Cranfield. And together they added up to something very like the European five-year engineering course. 
Cambridge taught you almost nothing about how to design bits for engineering, but it taught you how things worked. Cranfield taught you the practical side of how to design, how to stress a, a redundant frame, which Cambridge hadn't taught me. When I was asked to do it, I had to do it from first principles using strain energy. Um, and the two together actually meshed beautifully. And um, following John's earlier point about Guggenheim and MIT, after Cranfield, I did three months summer exchange at MIT in their aeronautics-sponsored research group. And the education the two universities had given me actually meant I could go in and be firing on all cylinders from the start and actually wrote a USAF report on how structures stand up to blast waves, which was classified, so I wasn't allowed to have a copy, although I did sneak <laughs> one. Anyway, enough reminiscences. There's a question at the back side. Uh, hello, my name's Nils Bartleet. Bit of the background, I was a flight manager and instructor at Kidlington. I decided at that period of time I'd go on the airlines. The beginning of my airline experience was the Dart Herald. I flew it at the beginning of my uh, airline experience and flew it up at the end of it. And um, during the whole of this wonderful discussion on Handy Page, very little reference has been made to the Dart Herald. And I personally had great appreciation of the ability of the aircraft in comparison with the 748 F-27 uh, as a practical operating pilot. So just like the views whether you, you, you seem to have rather underplayed or hidden the Dart Herald. I know it was a four-engine piston aircraft, but is there anybody here of Handy Page who could give me some information of why it's rather been cloaked, I thought. Thank you. Um, anyone like to come in on that? Uh, Harry, uh, microphone in front. I, I wasn't that much involved uh, at writing myself, but um, uh, I did pick up on the Dart Herald uh, when people moved to Cricklewood, and um, I always formed the opinion it was uh, designed by a very uh, interesting and very competent group of people, and the airplane itself was an extremely good one, which somehow it didn't quite gel. Now why, I don't know. It was, uh, uh, it deserved a, a very much better fate than, than it, uh, it actually got. And I think I mentioned it in my, in my notes. I didn't have a chance to say very much about, uh, Reading. But, um, the, uh, uh, military version of the Herald, the one with the upswept Hercules type tail, uh, was, I, I believe, um, just right for the Air Force and should have gone to the Air Force. Um, the 748, uh, I think, got it on political grounds, although it was quite a competent airplane. But being a low-wing airplane, it was, um, I've, I believe, uh, fundamentally unsuited to the sort of uh, operation that was required, like, as I say, like a Hercules. Um, the, the, the Dart Herald, I think there was a, something like 50 of them built, 48 to 50, something like that. And uh, they kept going for years and years and years and years. And I think the last one was a Channel Express uh, aircraft, which I think probably went out of service, what, about three or four or five years ago, something like that. And um, 
up to then they gave very good reliable service. I don't know why it didn't succeed better than it did. It didn't succeed better than it did. It's, it's strange. Doesn't Thanks, answer Sam. really your question, I'm afraid. I think there was a comment or question center back. Uh, my, my name's Denzel Isaacs. Uh, I am one of those who benefited from the one-third of Hanley Page's profits. Uh, I was an apprentice with Hanley Page, and I was sent to Northampton Polytechnic. It was then the bit I went to was called Northampton Engineering College on a six-month sandwich course, which lasted for four years. It was part of Sir Frederick's philosophy of giving us opportunity to learn the theoretical side as well as experience the technical side. Uh, he later very kindly sent me for two years to Cranfield, so I benefited yet again from his far-sighted policies. Um, but what I wanted to draw attention to was his paternalistic nature. Uh, when I joined Handy Page, I had not been with them for more than about a month, and I was invited to a dinner at the Hendon Hall Hotel together with a number of other apprentices. Uh, it wasn't just us. There was senior management present. I'm sure Paul will remember this. Most of people who have been apprentices here will remember that. But we had the chance of rubbing shoulders with the uh, powerful and the good at Handley Page. And they were so kind to us. They didn't treat us like inferior beings at all. But that was part of Handley Page's approach to educating his own people. Uh, the other thing, which is, I, I'll just make passing mention to, was that he also provided accommodation and housing for his staff at very low rents. And, in fact, I was a beneficiary of that as well. Uh, but it's just to show you the sort of paternalistic, uh, 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 you know, entrepreneur that Sir Frederick was. Thank you. Thank you, Denzel. Um, I, I, can re I can recall English Electric doing that in, in the, must be the sort of mid-50s. Nowadays, of course, if you're given a house or something, um, the taxman will want a return on it, won't he? <laughs> I believe, I, I believe the Jim Marshalls of Cambridge still do it, don't they? Um, I'm not quite sure how. Yeah, I think so. Um, we've had a wonderful day and well-researched papers throughout. I mean, we've had a terrific impression of this great man. Um, but every now and again, I have to fight back the thought, are we realizing that the best part of our future is behind us? Because I wonder where these great men are today, these great engineers, these great visionaries, <coughs> great leaders... Um, did we stop breeding them? I'm asking the two panelists to comment on this. Did we stop breeding them? Or what's happened? The only great engineering visionary I can think of plays around with vacuum cleaners. I'm not aircraft, the engines and things like that. And even he and his ideas about education have been rejected by the government. Um, could you comment on what has changed and what we're going to offer the future and who's going to lead it? I'm, I'm actually um, a reasonable optimist, not, not undue optimist. I think today's training and education programs are markedly better than a decade ago. Um, I think there are some, some really, really bright kids coming through. Not all British, but, but coming through the system, certainly in technical subjects. I think the nature of the industry has changed such that it's really 
for the nature of building things, the financial risks involved, and the way the customer, military or civil, operates, means that it's much more likely to be a team effort to a team effort than um, uh, an acquaintance of mine, the late Sir Arthur Marshall, used to berate me for not doing one or two things like he did, like walk in and tell the minister, you're not doing that, I want this. Well, he did it and he got away with it. But even he would have struggled to, to even get through the door um, by himself today, I think. It, I think it's just the nature of things. And I'm not sure um, that we're going to see the emergence of sort of towering pioneer figures. I think the industry has matured to a point where, as I say, it is teamwork. But it can be quite encouraging. I mean, some of the awards we've made here in the annual awards are to teams of people who've designed an Airbus wing. And the average age is, is remarkably low. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sort of reasoned optimist. Well, I think there's, there's a lot of truth in that. I think the idea of a, an entrepreneur, a, a, a big man who walks across the stage and takes everything under control is less likely to happen nowadays. Um, I've got to tread very carefully. I'm obviously from a research background, but I would blame quality systems because in legislating against the possibility of change in case you get it wrong, you also prevent making it better. And Handy Page would have lasted five minutes in the British aerospace that I used to work for. Uh, he would have got frustrated and, and left, I'm sure. And he would have done the same at, at, at the RAE. Um, and it's to do with the evolution of the society that we're in. Uh, you do find these characters today in the world, but they're not in Britain, they're not in Europe. They'll be in India, they'll be in China. That's where they'll be. Well, or they can do things... Um, They've got the freedom to say, right, we're going to do this. I'm in charge. I've got 10,000 people under my control, and we're going to change direction and do that today. Um, when I was um, when I was at Farnborough, I went on a delegation to the um, uh, research institute in Bangalore, and we had some marvellous exchange of ideas and said we should work jointly on something. And we promptly came home and lobbied the MOD for funding, and 18 months later... They gave us the funding and we went back out to Bangalore to plan the program. The Indians looked at us bemused and said, we finished all that six months ago. You know. uh, John? Yeah. Can, can I add one more comment? Um, in, in talking about early Handley Page, Harry didn't actually go into the details, but he trained as an electrical engineer. He gave, as a very young man, a paper to the Institute of Electrical Engineers Westinghouse offered him a job. He looked around the room and thought, these are a lot of old people listening to me. I'll go into something different. And I went into aeronautics. Um, aeronautics is now a big, if you like, mature industry. Bill Gates um, was not in a big mature industry when he actually did what he did. Bill Gates is the handy page of, uh, you know, two decades ago now, or three, whatever. So it's still there, but the people who make a big mark do so by breaking new ground in virgin territory. Big corporations, as was said, don't accommodate characters like, uh, like Henry Payne. Unless you're at the top of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fine. 
Thank you. I think we're running out of time, and I know Gordon has a, quite a journey ahead. So may I wind up this session, firstly by thanking Chris and Gordon for their papers, which are fascinating and have really shown us Handley Page's contribution to engineering education in this country. More generally, could I thank all the speakers today it's been an absolutely wonderful session. The papers have fitted together beautifully. They've all been of really high quality. And thank also you, the participants, for your contributions to the discussion. Everything has been recorded, so this is being saved for posterity. And there will be a CD of the formal papers that all the delegates will be getting. Thank you again, speakers, delegates and the staff who have organized this and made it all possible. Could you join me in thanking? <laughs>